Richard, once you identify a, a sector or an industry or a field going through major change, are there one or two characteristics you look for to help you identify how to play one of those, one of those trends? Uh, I wouldn't say there are one or two characteristics, uh, Brian, because you know, different businesses and different systemic changes are, uh, you know, make for a different kind of equation each time. Uh, when Hurricane Andrew came and wiped out the catastrophic reinsurance business, that's certainly something that's different than when you have something along the lines of a healthcare industry that has the government starting to try to reduce cost and the implications of that. And so you have to take, and what I do is I take a tremendous amount of time and effort to study each individual industry separately. Now, the common characteristic of it all is I try to build, in the midst of that change, the biggest and the best company of its time. Welcome to the Rainmakers Podcast, where I will give case studies on how different investors made their billions. In this second episode, we are continuing our journey to learn the investment methods of Richard Rainwater to see how he became a billionaire within 10 years of establishing his investment firm, Rainwater Inc. In this episode, we will go over how Rainwater built his firm, how he found his deals, and a couple of case studies on some of the most well-known investments he made. This is going to be a fun and hopefully insightful episode. I hope you guys enjoy it, and if you do, please subscribe for future episodes, leave a review, and share it with anyone else you think would enjoy it as well. Now, let's get on with the episode. The first thing I want to talk about is when Richard Rainwater established Rainwater Inc. When Rainwater went off on his own in 1986 after the Bass family had split up their assets between each brother and went their own way, he had to develop his own successful investment business. While he successfully built Bass Brothers Enterprises to be a merchant bank for emerging investment industry talent, he now had to change his approach and start from scratch. One of the Bass Brothers, Robert Bass, took the team that Richard had assembled to do investments of his own. The M&A boom of the 80s was starting to come to a halt. Many of the past managers at Rainwater backed had the means to do their own deals or retired. And most importantly, Rainwater did not have an underlying business that can help cover the overhead of his new firm in the same way that the Basses did with their oil companies. Every cent he made coming out of the Bass family was now at risk in starting his own firm. I got a glimpse of what Rainwater was thinking after one of the people who interned for him, John Phelan, said in an interview with Graham in Doddsville where he asked Richard Rainwater and David Bondurant what it took to create a successful investment business. Their answer was the three C's. Capital, connections, and culture. This is how Rainwater applied the three C's when it came to establishing Rainwater Inc. For the first C, capital, after going off on his own in 1986, he made $175 million from being part of the investments he made while working for the Bass family. This became the initial stake he would put in starting the firm. He did not use any outside capital. But he was not actually putting any of this capital to work right off the bat. He was still getting paid as a partner to the Bass Limited Investor Partnership and used the proceeds from that to cover his overhead for his own operation, which was paying the rent and his secretaries. For the second C, Connections, this was something Rainwater was already an expert in. Having made a name for himself in the 80s by backing the best investors on Wall Street, 
Rainwater still kept business as usual with people contacting him to make new deals. He also used the relationships he nurtured to fund some of the deals he made with his contacts at institutional partners like Bankers Trust or Equitable Life. This time around, however, Rainwater leveraged his image to be able to make different kinds of investments that he did not make in years past with the Bass family. Using his image, he became an important... Using his image became an important tool for Rainwater, and we will go over how he used his reputation to do some of the deals in some of our case studies. The third C, culture, was where Rainwater changed his approach the most from when he left the Bass family. A lot of the team that Rainwater built ended up joining Robert Bass when he set up his own operation when the family split their assets. As I said in the previous episode, Rainwater set up Bass Brothers Enterprises to be a merchant bank for the best investing talent in order to get in on the best deals but also learn from these individuals. This time around, he would hire talented people much younger than him that did not necessarily have the experience of investing. Let's go down the list of who these young people were. First on the roster is Peter Juice, a Harvard Business School graduate who in 1984 sent a bold letter to Richard Rainwater asking for a job. He ended up being Rainwater's right-hand man at Rainwater Inc. Next, we have John Goth, an individual who played a pivotal role as Rainwater and the Bass's personal accountant who joined Rainwater Inc. in 1986. Next is Ken Hirsch, a student at Stanford Business School who made his entrance at Rainwater Inc. after conducting extensive research on the natural gas industry for Rainwater in 1988. Next, we have Dan Stern, another key player in the team. Not only did he work closely with Rainwater, but he also went on to create a fund of funds known as Reservoir Capital. This venture would go on to launch the careers of influential investment managers, including the well-known Barry Sternlicht of Starwood Capital. Then there is Eddie Lampert, who previously worked at Goldman Sachs and Arbitrage, who answered the call when Rainwater sought somebody to partner with on equity investments. This partnership would later bloom into the establishment of the renowned hedge fund ESL Investments. Another pivotal team member was John Phelan, who we previously mentioned this episode where he embarked on his journey with a simple letter to Richard Rainwater while he was still a student at Harvard Business School. This initial connection led to a summer stint with Rainwater, which evolved into a full-time position at ESL Partners. But I have one important note with all these people that Rainwater decided to bring along with him. These people did not actually work for Richard Rainwater. He did not pay anyone. He gave them offices to share with him and access to the deals people would bring when they would come to visit him at his office. In the book, The Fastest Tortoise by Ken Hirsch, who worked with Rainwater, he gives us an insight on how Rainwater Inc. actually operated, saying, If I didn't know better, I would have thought I was in a semiconductor clean room or some sort of medical lab. Each office had a glass wall facing out to the core of the floor, but the other three walls were a solid white covered in slick magnetic surface that turned every wall into a marker board. Occupied offices had those walls filled with handwritten notes and numbers, giving off the feel that each room was its own deal lab. Stark white secretarial cubes filled the interior of the floor, all sitting atop the low-cut gray carpet. Richard's office was large but nondescript. He sat behind a large white desk, and I took a seat in one of the two black guest chairs. His desk was bare except for two phones, a couple of photos of his family, a yellow legal pad, a black felt-tip marker, and a mysterious blue book. As I would come to learn, his yellow legal pad guided his day as he took notes and scribbles during calls, meticulously coloring in the yellow pad as the calls went on. All work was done in a black felt-tip pen. By the end of the day, the pad was black. 
When he was ready to go home, he would tear off the top yellow page, now black, wad up the paper, and throw it and the used felt-tip pen into the trash. So this was a very interesting description of how rainwater actually used to work. But Ken Hirsch would continue on saying how the deal people would like him would work with rainwater, saying, At the time, the rainwater office was a loose confederation of deal guys. Peter was really Richard's right-hand man. He's talking about Peter Juice. But he was not drawing a paycheck from him from what I could tell. Each person worked on deals, and then when a deal got done, there would be some sort of board or monitoring fees that were negotiated as part of the closing. Those sources of income stacked up to cover the overhead once someone did one or two deals. Richard seemed to relish the fact that nobody reported to him and that he didn't have a real payroll other than his assistants. I would later come to find out that a legacy investment fund that Richard oversaw when he was at the Bass organization continued to pay him an overhead fee after he went out on his own. So he didn't even really have to cover his office overhead. The office was a collaborative deal job shop in which each deal professional worked on the deals they brought in. There was a little collaboration. When capital was needed, the deal's leader would usually walk around the office and see who wanted to invest in it, as well as solicit the participation of institutional partners. When capital was needed, the deal's leader would usually walk around the office and see who wanted to invest in it, as well as solicit the participation of institutional partners. Richard used to say, go find partners, then walk the deal around the office and I'll take whatever's left. He later quipped, I knew when guys were ready to leave and strike out on their own because deals would only make it halfway around the floor or they wouldn't even get out of the guy's office before the entire equity check was spoken for. That was Ken Hirsch in his book, The Fastest Tortoise. So as we can see, he structured Rainwater Inc. to instead be a deal academy for young, talented investors to learn investing by fostering a risk-taking environment that forced them to make deals in order to get paid. This was the same experience Rainwater had when he worked with the Basses. This was allowed the people he hired to essentially be partners of his who had a free desk where they could see the people who would walk in with a deal that they wanted to pitch him. This was a great incentive for both the people who would accept this deal and for Rainwater. They would get a world-class education in deal-making from arguably the best deal-maker of the 80s, and Rainwater would in some ways get clones of himself who are now hunting for deals that he would be a part of. Rainwater during this time period would strictly be an investor and would not be on the boards on a lot of companies he would end up forming. If a person on the team found him the deal or wanted to pursue a certain investment Rainwater found, he would put them on the board and let them handle the investment while he looked for new opportunities. Now that he had his investment firm properly structured, he now had to find his new big idea, but during this time it was much different than the investor landscape he invested in on behalf of the Bass family. So now let's move on to how Richard Rainwater generated his ideas. After studying Rainwater's investing with the Bass family, I learned that his investing style can be separated into two distinct buckets. The style he developed in the 70s was to back the best talent in new emerging investment fields by starting funds with them. This was categorized as a one-time transformation to Rainwater and the Basses because the start of these new industries like venture capital allowed for a new way to invest in technology companies. By being the backer of these new investment industries, Rainwater got to reap big returns relatively quickly and also learn from the best in those fields. Just to highlight how early Rainwater was to many of these fields, I want to give a quick timeline of some of the funds he set up before many of the brand names we now regard as the pioneers of each industry. For example, when Rainwater funded Idanta in 1971, 
It was a year before Sequoia or Kleiner Perkins had started in 1972. When Rainwater did buyouts, there hadn't actually been a private equity industry yet. So this became a frequent source of alpha for Rainwater because he was essentially starting new funds in these now prominent industries with the best players. The best example of this, which I highlighted in the first episode, was a fund that he made with Michael Milken at the height of the M&A boom of the 80s called the Bass Investor Limited Partnership. By the time Rainwater would go out on his own in 1986, however, this would all change. It became increasingly competitive to do deals in these industries, and there were no good deals to pursue. After Rainwater left the Basses, the fund he made with Milken changed its name to the Airlisle Group, and it would do a string of bad deals causing Rainwater to leave. Another challenge to his old thesis was a lot of the people Rainwater backed either retired or would start their own funds. For example, David Dunn of Idonta Partners never raised another fund and retired after turning their $8 million investment into $200 million for the Basses. Al Checky, who was Rainwater's right-hand man in the Disney deal, would leave the Basses and actually outbid Rainwater and the Basses for Northwest Airlines. The real estate expert that they hired, David G. Marshall, ended up buying out the Basses from their real estate that he managed for them in 1987. So this just shows how much things have changed since Rainwater started this method. So now let's transition to the second bucket I learned from Rainwater when he invested for the Basses. The second bucket was modeled after his investment in Disney. He would invest in an undermanaged company like Disney and find a way to bring in a new executive who could steer the ship back to being a profitable company again. Rainwater talks about this in an interview with Financial World in 1989 where he said, My favorite securities are not only undervalued, but those of quote-unquote undermanaged companies. In terribly managed companies, you have guys who are doing absolutely the wrong things. They're pushing it off the cliff. I don't have enough time or energy to involve myself in things like that. Disney was an undermanaged company, not a terribly managed one. He later goes on to say in this article of how he could fix these undermanaged companies by saying, I personally try to involve myself at the management level to see if I could cause the existing management of a company to do some things better. You're terribly managing your assets when you're the worldwide leader in some areas, and over time you lose that leadership role. You're undermanaging your assets when you do not focus on the core businesses where you are the leader and then make them even more dominant. The second bucket of Rainwater's style became his more favored approach moving forward. Why? Because beginning in the mid-80s, the economy was in a recession. Saving and loan banks, who depended heavily on loaning out to new businesses, began to go bankrupt as the economy started slowing down. With the lack of economic growth in industries that were once booming, it became clear that this was a time where most of the A players were on the sidelines or had retired well before the bust. But he would iterate his approach to involve both of his styles. He now viewed major one-time transformations on the down markets as well. By identifying industries on the decline, he could find an undermanaged company and use his influence to bring a world-class manager to take over. Rainwater gives us a clue to how he finds these sorts of businesses in an interview with Worth Magazine in 1987, where he says, My objective is to capitalize on major one-time transformations in an industry or company. Most of the time, the critical information that enables me to identify these significant changes is not on the business pages of the newspaper, but on the front page. In fact, if industry changes are highlighted on the business pages, it is usually too late for my kind of investing. So Rainwater began to look for undermanaged companies during this time period where many industries were now going bust. 
but this only became one part of what Rainwater was looking for. Before we move on, I have a couple of other very important aspects Rainwater considered before making an investment. First, I want to go over how equally important it was for Rainwater to find creative ways to get big stakes in companies by putting little to nothing down. Rainwater described his parameters to investing best in an interview with Forbes magazine in 1992, where he said, you only need three things to invest, low prices, good operating terms, and financial leverage. Part of his thinking came from his education from working with the Bass Brothers. In the article, Lord of the Lowball, Shad Rowe gives a great story of how Sid Richardson made his deals, saying, at one point, Richardson instructed a longtime associate to buy a property that was for sale and to offer the seller X amount. The associate said, Mr. Richardson, I can't do that. The property is worth 2x. If I make that offer, the seller will be insulted and we will all be embarrassed. Sid Richardson exploded. Get your ass over there and offer what I'm telling you to offer. Naturally, through ignorance or desperation, the seller sold for X. Shad Rowe would later go on to say, Whether Rainwater would admit that the story made a strong impression on him, I do not know. I believe it did. The wall paintings of early cave dwellers are to the works of Michelangelo as Sid Richardson's lowball offers are to the business style of Richard Rainwater. So keep this in mind when we go over his deals. He did not just look at industries, but he needed to find a way to get a business for as little cash down as possible. The last consideration that will give us a foundation to Rainwater's thinking is how much emphasis he put on having great incentives for each person in the deals that he does. I spoke about it earlier about how he set up his shop by incentivizing the young talent he brought in by making them hunt for deals because they were not getting paid. He would do the exact opposite when it came to recruiting talented managers who could help the companies he would invest in. Here's a quote from a profile about Richard Rainwater from the magazine Institutional Investor that talks about his approach. It says, Rainwater brought in a bunch of partners, including David Geffen, people in his office, and others by simply giving them a total of 2 million shares of a stock. In fact, he says that over the course of his career, he's given away stock in his deals to as many as 100 employees, associates, and friends. I believe it works for me in the long term to help others, he says. So Rainwater really cared about making sure everyone involved had enough skin in the game so they could all achieve success. He was in it to win it and was not greedy. He knew that by giving away stock or creating incentives for management to make money when the stock for the company went up, everyone would win. That is part of the reason why Rainwater also attacked big opportunities. By going after a big opportunity, he would not need to actually own a lot of the company to still make it out with a high return. He would utilize the fund structure to create these incentives by making the people responsible for the success general partners and would use his contacts at institutional partners to get additional funding either by way of debt or having them be limited partners in the fund. If it was a business, if it was a business he was acquiring, he would put his deal team on the board and would give the star executive he found enough stock at the beginning with other incentives, so when the company turned around, the executive would make it out with more than just a steady salary. So to review, the new rainwater investment method comprised of three criteria. Number one, find major one-time transformations in industries. At this time, it was usually industries on the decline. Number two, find a way to put as little down as possible to get the deal done. And number three, recruit and incentivize the best manager that can operate the company back to being profitable. Now we have the foundation to what Rainwater looked for in his investments. So now let's see some case studies on his deals so that we could truly understand his style and how he became a self-made billionaire. His first deal would come from oil and gas investing. 
A lot of the details of this upcoming case study it comes from the book Ensco, The First 20 Years by Carolyn Barta. I highly recommend reading the whole thing if you want to understand how Rainwater did his deals. So why did he pick an oil company as his first deal? Well, let's go back to how he generated ideas. He looked at headlines. So what was the headline on July 9th, 1986? The LA Times headlines read, Oil falls below $11 a barrel. Oil prices that were once skyrocketing due to the embargoes in the Middle East in 1973 and then 1979 started to fall when Saudi Arabia decided to increase the supply of oil in 1986. In the 70s, the oil shocks caused a major economic boom in Texas with drillers going out and acquiring new equipment to continue drilling. As I mentioned in the previous episode, these shocks were also very helpful for Rainwater and the Basses. After Rainwater figured out how to successfully structure Bass Brothers Enterprises, they now had the initial $50 million along with millions of dollars at the oil companies the Bass family owned at their disposal. This allowed them to see as many deals and show the image that they had, quote-unquote, unlimited money so that the investment managers would pitch them as part of their roadshow to seek institutional investment. But beginning in 1981, this all came to a halt after the start of a recession causing demand for oil to wane. After the economy kept slowing down in 1984, many of these drillers in Texas began to cut down on their operations, and because of their ambition to supply oil, many of them took on debt to own the equipment they were now shutting down. One of these offshore drillers in dire straits was Blocker Energy. Blocker Energy was established by John Blocker, who was an operations manager for Dresser Industries where he was responsible for the international drilling operations. After leaving Dresser, he bought a small drilling company that he now named Blocker Energy and began to focus on operating his new company after the exploration boom caused by the oil embargo in 1973. With his expertise in the international market, he decided to focus his contract drilling around the world viewing it as a less competitive and more resistant to the cyclicality of the domestic oil business. Trying to seize the opportunity, he expanded rapidly, but soon found the company he built $44 million in debt. To pay down some of the debt, he decided to take the company public and use the public offering to expand further. By the early 80s, Blocker Energy was the world's 15th largest contract drilling company, with 54 rigs operating in 8 countries. But as the oil market started to slump in the early 80s, his company was on the verge of bankruptcy by 1984. After losing $3 million in operations in 1985, Blocker was about to go bankrupt and needed an investor to save it from bankruptcy. So John Blocker decided to pitch the Basses and Rainwater the investment in early 1986. But as you guys already know, at this time, Bass Brothers Enterprises was unwinding their operations, and Rainwater himself was busy starting his own firm, so they declined to help, but Rainwater kept his eyes open on the opportunity. Then, July 9th, 1986, the headlines shown that the once big oil boom had by that point gone completely bust. So Rainwater, having the contrarian spirit, decided to seriously pursue an investment in the industry. In the book, Ensco, The First 20 Years, it shows Rainwater's contrarian spirit when a specialized oil and gas investment banker described his encounter with Rainwater during this time period. He says, One day, out of the blue, Richard Rainwater called to tell me that I was in a catbird seat on the front row of a great unfolding disaster, and he wanted to get acquainted. My first thought when he called was that he was crazy. I was struggling to keep our small investment banking firm alive in what seemed like a genuine holocaust. Needless to say, I took Rainwater's advice and jumped on a plane headed to Fort Worth that afternoon. So Blocker Energy would actually end up being Rainwater's first deal. And let, let me break it down for you guys. Two months after the bust was reported all over the newspapers, Rainwater proposed buying the debt of Blocker Energy 
which was reported to be around $100 million at that time. The debt was held by many national and southwestern banks who were also having problems with their own loan books from this collapse as well. At the time when Richard wanted to buy the debt, Blocker was about to default on their $100 million in loans at the exact same time other companies were about to go under as well. This started a chain reaction where now the banks had become fragile and needed liquidity as well. But Rainwater had a solution. He would give $12 million in cash to the banks that held Blocker Energy debt. He would then receive 65% of the outstanding common stock in the company, a $12 million note payable from Blocker, and $4 million of newly issued Blocker preferred stock. The banks would in turn get $12 million in cash and would give their interest in all the outstanding debt from Blocker and receive $3.7 million of newly issued shares of Blocker common stock and $400,000 worth of preferred stock in return. Blocker would now reduce their debt from $100 million owed to banks to $12 million owed to Rainwater in exchange for the issuance of 3.7 million shares of common stock and 4.4 million of preferred stock. So let me just simplify this for you guys, because I know that was a lot of numbers for a podcast, but just to, just to say it and play in English, Richard Rainwater invested $12 million, and he ended up getting 65% of Blocker, a loan of $12 million paid back to him from Blocker, and $4 million of preferred stock. Now I know what you're thinking. Why would the banks go for such a lopsided deal? Well, two reasons. The banks were in desperate need of cash due to having a lot of bad loans that were defaulting in their oil and gas lending so that they could stabilize their balance sheets so they do not fail themselves. The even bigger reason was that Rainwater knew this was a global drilling company. Because all the equipment is all across the world, the cost of seizing the equipment if Blocker did default would have cost these banks more than the $12 million Richard Rainwater was giving them. This in turn made Rainwater's deal the lesser of two evils and gave these banks some sort of recourse with shares in the newly formed company should it actually become successful. With the banks accepting the deal and things progressing to making it official, a big surprise put the deal on halt. Rainwater contacted ex-Sedco executive Carl Thorne to check out the company and paid him in stock for his involvement in consulting the company. Thorne gave Rainwater his assessment and thought he should not invest in it because of the old equipment Blocker had and the fact they would not be used as much due to current market conditions. Now let's back up for a moment. In the previous episode, I explained how Rainwater's contrarian spirit provided him the opportunity to invest in the world's best managers because all the institutional partners backed out because of bad market conditions at that time. Rainwater was not simply running into a burning building for the sake of looking like a hero. He wanted to take advantage of the opportunity of this oil bust to use the operating losses of Blocker to buy a profitable company in another sector so that he could merge the two and shield the profits from taxes. Rainwater had this idea when he was working for the Basses, and coincidentally, this was how he met and then hired David Bonderman. It's a longest story, but for these purposes, a short version. <laughs> I was representing Braniff Airlines, the legendary Texas carrier that went under. I was a lawyer in those days, and Richard was thinking about trying to buy it because it had new tax loss carry forwards, which in those days, before they changed the law, you could use it for unrelated businesses. So you could go shelter everything else. And Richard had this, in very Richard style, semi cockamamie deal <laughs> teed up where he was going to try to buy VF which is the owner of Wrangler Jean, which yes. was very yep, profitable, and merge it into Braniff Airways, which was very <laughs> loss-making but had a lot of shelter, and he was going to get the whole thing. It was a little too complicated to actually happen. So although Rainwater was a contrarian and wanted to make investments in the oil business at this time, he viewed his blocker investment as strictly a quote-unquote financial play. 
One of the people on Rainwater's deal team, Gerald Haddock, explained that by getting this company for little to nothing down with hard assets that can be fairly managed, Rainwater planned on using the operating losses that Blocker had stacked up over the years to then purchase a pre-tax profitable company to merge it into to utilize the NOL so they could lock a high return without paying taxes. But on October 31st, 1986, things changed. One of the rigs out in Venezuela that Blocker owned and was still operating had exploded and was severely damaged. This was one of the only rigs that was still operating for the company. When Rainwater heard the news, he called Haddock and wanted him to investigate if the rig was insured and who would get the proceeds from the insurance on the rig. After digging through, Haddock told Rainwater that the rig was indeed insured, and because they were the purchaser, they would get insurance proceeds if the rig was marked as a total loss. So when the deal closed on December 11th, 1986, Rainwater purchased the remaining debt for his $12 million, but after declaring a total loss on that individual rig, the insurance company then paid him back $13.4 million, instantly making him $1.4 million on the deal as soon as the ink dried. This altered Rainwater's initial plans, and now because he was already up on his investment and still had the vision of reaping a big gain by investing in oil services, he decided that he wanted Blocker Energy to be his platform to do it. He knew Carl Thorne was the A player with his background in oil services at Sedco, and he made him the pitch of a lifetime by promoting him on the board, making him a CEO, and gifting him some of the shares that are now worth millions of dollars so that he has a big enough ownership stake to start the new restructured company. When Thorne accepted the deal, Rainwater then used his connections with Drexel Burnham to do a low price stock offering in April 1987. When Blocker went public again, it sold 22.7 million shares at $2.49 a share, raising $54.2 million of working capital for the company. The reason the offering was so successful is that Rainwater's image of being a financial genius was used as the currency that investors wanted to buy. Also helping with this effort was Carl Thorne being a known expert in the space with operating experience that could keep the company profitable. They changed the name to Energy Services Company Inc., or ENSCO for short, and had the goal of hitting $1 billion in revenue in 1987 when they started. It was off to the races. From 1987 to 1991, however, Thorne had his work cut out for him. Demand for oil was still very low, and he had to find ways to run the business knowing that it was not going to pick up anytime soon. So he resorted to running the company as a diversified oil services company to steadily run a profitable business with the goal of eventually becoming specialized as an offshore contract driller in the future. He made a series of acquisitions with the new working capital to acquire different service segments in the industry around the world, like acquiring a tool and supply company, forming an exploration and production company, and forming a technology company that would provide horizontal drilling services. This proved to be a successful strategy that kept ENSCO afloat during these years when drilling was steadily declining. But Thorne was very opportunistic and was waiting for an opportunity to be a big player in the offshore drilling industry. His first attempt came when Gearhart Industries filed for bankruptcy in 1988. ENSCO bought the debt in the same fashion as Rainwater with Blocker's debt, hoping to secure the company like he did. In total, ENSCO, with Rainwater architecting it behind the scenes, bought around $66 million of Gearhart's debt. But after some shady dealings behind the scenes, Gearhart would end up being acquired by Halliburton without ENSCO getting a proper chance of buying the company. It did not end bad, though, since from their purchases of the debt, Halliburton bought ENSCO out, giving them an $11 million profit. But now let's move on to the bigger deal that came out of this whole investment. The Penrod deal. 
Buying the debt of distressed oil companies became a traditional play for Rainwater and Ensco. The investment that would make Ensco the big player in offshore drilling came around a year later after their failed bid for Gearhart in 1989, when the biggest offshore driller at the time ran by the Hunt family, Penrod, was on the verge of being sold at a bankruptcy auction. In the book Ensco, The First 20 Years, it details this saying, Simmons and Company, which did reorganization and bankruptcy work in the oil and gas industry, provided analysis for the banks that were trying to recover their investment in Penrod. Matt Simmons, the company's CEO and chairman, determined this was probably the finest offshore company in the industry. Because they were privately owned, no one knew. What caused trouble at Penrod? Well, two things. Number one, Penrod borrowed heavily to modernize their fleet when oil prices were going up, racking up more than $900 million of debt, while demand for offshore drilling slowed significantly, making it over leveraged. So they did exactly the same thing that John Blocker did at Blocker Energy. And Rainwater took advantage of this whole dilemma twice, now with first with Blocker Energy and now with Penrod. And the second reason there was trouble at Penrod was Bunker and Herbert Hunt were not able to pay off the debt since they were both trying to corner the silver market in the 70s. You heard that right. But the silver market crashed in 1980, which forced them to lever up even more to keep their oil assets in Penrod and Placid Oil. And now with oil crashing, they had no safety net to keep those assets as well. This forced the Hunts to effectively file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 1987, with the banks taking operating control of Penrod so they could get back their $760 million in loans given to the company. The resolution of the Chapter 11 bankruptcy was to turn Penrod into a corporation from a partnership giving the Hunts 50% ownership, while the banks owned the other 50% in exchange for $75 million of the debt being forgiven. The Hunts also gave real estate to the banks for forgiveness of $200 million more of Penrod's debt. This allowed the banks to effectively restructure Penrod and make a new note where the company now owed them $525 million secured by Penrod's assets. As part of the deal, the banks would also get $300 million of future profits from Placid Oil if Penrod did go under. If there was no default, however, the Hunts could buy back 50% in the company. The true test would come on March 31st, 1990, where the Hunts had to make their first principal payment on the new $525 million loan. The Rainwater strategy of buying bank debt to gain control of companies at the time was a very new idea. Rainwater had been aware of Penrod's issues and was seeing how Penrod was going to make their first big debt payments that were coming due. Because Ensco had little cash due to its small operations and acquisitions, Rainwater came back to help in a big way. In May 1989, Ensco and Rainwater began to buy the debt of Penrod from banks that held its stock. Rainwater formed a partnership that included Goldman Sachs, Natural Gas Partners, Rainwater Inc., Mort Mayerson, Gerald Haddock, and Thomas Kelly. In this partnership, only Goldman Sachs was not an entity that wasn't involved with Rainwater. For $51 million, they acquired 17.3% of the debt and 8.6% of the equity of Penrod in November 1989. While other big firms like Lowe's and Rowan companies were idly waiting for Penrod to finally go bankrupt so they could buy it at an auction, Rainwater outsmarted them by taking effective control of the debt to stop the company from ever heading towards bankruptcy. Rainwater knew the Hunt brothers and knew that Penrod was going to default on the debt after they tried to use him to bail them out. Carl Thorne described this moment in the book saying, we walked in and it was a creditors meeting we didn't know anything about. They introduced Richard and said, well, here's the guy that's going to help us get this whole thing restructured. Be careful what you wish for. Rainwater and Thorne left that meeting and decided not to talk to the Hunt brothers ever again. 
Rainwater had the information he needed and was sure that they were going to fall on their first debt payment on March 31st, 1990, on their $525 million note due. The Hunt brothers now had to weigh their options. Seeing their offshore drilling fleet go and their oil company as well, they chose to focus on placid oil and bowed out from trying to rescue Penrod. This paved the way for Rainwater & Co. to then buy more of the company's debt from banks, giving them 27.1% of the debt and 13.6% of the equity by November 1989. Another investment fund who noticed this trend right after Rainwater was R.D. Smith Co. and began to buy the debt from banks as well and retained a stake valued at 24% of the debt. With 51% of the debt between the two, they now had control of the debt and decided to buy out the remaining banks by selling some of the assets Penrod owned in order to pay off their remaining debt payments of the $525 million note. With the repayment of the debt, Rainwater now had 58% of Penrod's debt, with R.D. Smith owning the other 41%. But as Rainwater and Ensco would try to fully buy out the rest of the company from R.D. Smith, they held out until 1993 once Smith realized there was no other way to sell their shares with Rainwater controlling After this four-year journey was all said and done, Rainwater and Ensco paid $294 million for Penrod. Only years before, the Hunt brothers had spent $1.5 billion building out the company, and even though Rainwater and Ensco sold off some assets to meet the debt payments to remain in control, they still now owned a company worth $1 billion of assets with no debt, and with it strategically being the biggest offshore drilling fleet, Carl Thorne finally got to steer Ensco towards its final vision of being the biggest player in offshore drilling. And after this takeover, Rainwater did what he always did. He let the A player run the company, and he let it play out. So what was the outcome of this first case study on Rainwater's investment in Ensco? Well, Rainwater was a patient man. He was the biggest shareholder, and when they first came up with the vision of hitting $1 billion in revenue in 1987, Rainwater pledged to Thorne that he would not take his money out until it had hit that point. And he did, but it took a whole 20 years later. In 2007, on the 20th anniversary of Ensco's founding, assets went from $61 million to $4.5 billion. Revenue went from $38.5 million to $1.8 billion. Net income went from $3.3 million to $769.7 million. Employee count went from 250 people to 3,648 people worldwide. Stockholder equity went from $36.4 million to $3.2 billion and a closing market cap in 2007 of $9 billion. Rainwater's 4.2% stake in the company in 2007 was now worth $378 million, making his $12 million initial investment in 1986 an annual compounded return of 18% a year. And while this turned out to be a great return for Rainwater, this was one of his smaller investments and did not make up a bulk of his wealth in becoming a billionaire by 1996. But it did start his own investment firm and was the first of many investments where his creativity and contrarian spirit shine through. Now let's move on to what made up the bulk of Rainwater's net worth, his investments in the healthcare industry. Here's the headline that was started off for Rainwater's healthcare investments. On September 1st, 1983, the New York Times front page read, Standard rates set for hospitals under Medicare. What did this mean? Essentially, the government would set the price on services and the only way for hospitals to make money would be to produce said service below that cost. So here's a little bit of background. Why did this matter? The private hospital chain business had been a huge industry that had been growing from the 60s because of a huge push made by the government's introduction of Medicare 
1965. The federal government at this time was giving hospitals a blank check or the taxpayer would reimburse all the medical costs patients would rack up. Bob Apple noticed the high demand for hospitals and formed the first private hospital chain called American Medical International, or AMI for short, in 1956, converting his laboratory company to then buying two hospitals in 1960 and then raising capital in an IPO the same year. Thomas Frist Jr. of Hospital Corporation of America, or HCA for short, on the other hand, became the dominant player in the space. And after having gone to business school, he took inspiration from his classmate, Kemins Wilson of Holiday Inn, and had the idea of creating a hospital chain much like Wilson did with the hotels. In his oral history, he talks about this saying, I just plagiarized the concept, he said, and then returned to his dad, who was a well-known physician in Nashville, who helped found a hospital to start his idea called Hospital Corporation of America. They recruited Jack Massey of KFC, yeah, the, the fried chicken chain, to head up the operations for this new venture, and they were off running. Quickly from the 60s to the early 70s, HCA started to acquire and start new hospitals throughout the South. But just as quickly as they expanded, the government realized they had a problem on their hands with Medicare costs rising every year. While the government tried to bring costs down, like Nixon introducing health maintenance organizations, otherwise known as HMOs, to manage costs by providing fixed services that were agreed to by hospitals and doctors as a way to mitigate costs, private hospital chains just kept growing. Each year, HCA and AMI would continue to acquire chains throughout the country, while demand kept growing with more and more 65 and older people using their services. But the music finally stopped in 1983 when the government made major changes to Medicare costs and systematized costs stopping medical chains from doing many services and losing revenue. Demand was also slowing down at the same time while the economy was in the middle of a recession, leaving hospital beds empty while many of these once mighty chains now on the verge of going under. For the first time in 20 years, hospitals did not have a blank check by the government and now had to run these capital-intensive facilities like a real business. Rainwater, seeing a once burgeoning industry now in distress, decided to take a look and made its first investment in the medical industry by buying AMI shares on behalf of the Bass family in 1985. At first, he bought an 8.7% stake in the company, and less than two weeks later, he raised it to 10.2% with rumors of there being a buyout from him brewing in the papers. This was not one of those investments where it was a home run. After buying 10.2% of the company, Rainwater went on the board and more so observed what was happening with AMI while trying to find a solution of his own to the broader problem that the healthcare industry was facing. Rainwater viewed AMI as what he liked to call quote-unquote undermanaged companies, which we talked about before and want to change management with an executive who actually cared for the bottom line of a business. The person he wanted to bring in was Mort Mayerson, who previously led EDS as a COO before it got acquired by General Motors. Another hospital chain at the time named Republic was doing their own acquisition spree and decided to go public right before the government made changes to the billing of Medicare in 1983 thanks to their attorney, Rick Scott. After making an acquisition of healthcare resources for $93 million in stock, the executives of Republic became overpowered by Leroy Pesch, who was the owner of healthcare resources and now became the biggest shareholder of Republic after the acquisition. In 1985, Pesch rolled out a plan to the executives of Republic to do a management-led buyout after he got support from Drexel Burnham to engineer the bonds. But after the LBO was done in 1986, he went out in February 1987 and began to do a buyout of AMI in the same fashion. AMI declined the buyout offer, and later Pesh seemingly was watching his own buyout with Republic slowly go bust, 
after the company was now in the red and had to sell off assets to meet debt payments, leaving the company it once was a shell of itself. Rainwater had a front row seat to this whole debacle and seemingly gave up on his own efforts of doing a buyout of AMI after seeing the challenge of finding the right executive who can operate this pro company profitably out of this mess. Rainwater realized that these operators who ran the hospital chains in the 1960s to the 80s were not the right people for the job. In the book, The For-Profit Healthcare Revolution, it gives us a glimpse of Rainwater during this period saying, Rainwater went on a tirade after having a meeting with one hospital executive named Ira Corman of Humana, where he criticized the big four of the private hospital chains being AMI, NME, Humana, and HCA, saying the companies would not have existed if they had to start over today, and their only reason for surviving was that they had a 25-year jump. But Rainwater knew there is a solution through better operations, but kept this on the back burner while he was doing his own oil and gas investments in 1986, which we previously mentioned with Ensco. This now brings us to 1987, where Rainwater would revisit his healthcare investment. Rainwater made it a priority to figure out his investment with AMI, and more importantly, he wanted to see if he could be a bigger player in the hospital industry. He realized that the hospital business was at a major point of restructuring, and that if operated correctly by cutting costs and creating a system around incentivizing doctors to run their practices efficiently, you can essentially buy hospitals that are now distressed and turn them around. And in doing so, you could be the only company in this era that can now buy these distressed assets since there is no competition and become one of the biggest hospital companies in the country. He needed to act fast. And after unsuccessfully trying to get Marison to lead AMI, he instead went about trying to form a new hospital chain company. How is Rainwater going to achieve this? He needed to find a proven hospital operator that ran the chains profitably and shared his unique innovation in turning these chains from corporations into partnerships with the doctors that worked for these hospitals. By giving the doctors ownership, Rainwater believed they would now run their practice not as employees, but rather as an owner and would find ways to improve their service without running up a high bill. Again, going back to what I said about incentives, Rainwater wanted to make sure the doctors had skin in the game and would benefit from the overall performance of the hospital and not just their own work. With this solution in hand, Rainwater started to call Charles Miller, who was an executive at Republic before leaving the company when Pesh took over. Miller, Richard Ragsdale, and Rick Scott all left their jobs at Republic and decided to pursue their own leverage buyout of HCA in 1987. HCA did not take the offer seriously and declined it outright. Ragsdale went on to found another hospital chain called Community Health Systems, and Scott continued his practice of being an M&A lawyer for hospital chains. Miller, on the other hand, got a call from Richard Rainwater to start his own hospital chain and invited him to Nantucket to meet with Rainwater on the proposition. The book, The Healthcare Revolution, which we previously mentioned, shows us the behind the scenes of, of how that meeting took place, where it says, look, I know how Republic had its problems, Rainwater declared. Then he commended Miller on knowing when to get out, referring to Miller's departure before Republic's ill-fated LBO in 1986. Rainwater added that he senses Miller was smart enough to get off the track before the train wreck. But after thinking it over, Miller declined because he did not want to deal with the trouble of starting another hospital chain. So when Rainwater asked him who he can recommend, he told him about his old lawyer, Rick Scott. Now, who was Rick Scott? He was an entrepreneur. He would do chores for money when he was a Boy Scout. He would sell soda to his fellow soldiers when he was in the Navy. And when he needed money to go to school after leaving the Navy, he bought a donut shop with the scholarship money he got. After profiting off the first donut shop, he bought two more with a partner and tripled the returns. After finishing law school, he joined a law firm that specialized in healthcare M&A. 
He had a front row seat seeing how different hospital chains were expanding throughout the early 80s and was known for his work in architecting the IPO for the Republic Hospital chain. Seeing what all these hospital corporations were doing, he had a bird's eye view and noticed a shift saying, I thought that this industry was going to change and whoever did it would do extremely well. After realizing himself that the industry was changing and needed better operations, he teamed up with the two Republic executives to try and buy HCA, which we now know was quickly rejected. And this was the exact moment he and Rainwater had met up. They both had the same vision, and with Rainwater trusting Scott's judgment, they each put up $125,000, and Rainwater gave him a desk in his office to start the hospital chain now known as Columbia. Rainwater finally had the solution in place, and put the best manager he knew that could get it done. It was now in the hands of Rick Scott to become the big player. And that he did. Very quickly, might I add. The first deal he did was to use the $250,000 he and Rainwater put up to buy out two hospitals in El Paso, Texas. To do this, Scott convinced 110 physicians that would work in these hospitals to be part of the partnership with the rest of the money he needed to fund the purchase coming from a $65 million loan from Citibank. This structure became the blueprint to all his deals. Again, just like Rainwater, Scott wanted the physicians to share in the ownership so they could run their practices more efficiently by being cost conscious and providing better care. With the first acquisition being very successful, Scott now used his network he built from being an M&A lawyer to now buy hospitals from chains that were divesting from their own problems. He quickly seized the opportunities given to him and went on a crazy acquisition spree buying a portfolio of hospitals in Miami next. While Scott was rapidly building up Columbia's hospital portfolio, Rainwater was doing hospital investments of his own. In 1989, HCA was facing its own problems from overexpansion in the early 80s when the stock price did not truly reflect what Thomas Frist Jr. thought HCA was worth. And after seeing Rick Scott and his partners bid for HCA two years earlier, he decided to pursue his own management-led buyout. The problem was the hospital industry was in a glut and many banks did not think HCA would be able to pay its big debt burden that it would have. The banks needed a person who would give them confidence that the investment would work and needed someone reputable to be part of the equity in the buyout. That was when Frist called Rainwater and had him participate in the deal, which then allowed the buyout to go through. Again, this is where like, I repeated in the beginning. Rainwater used his image as an asset to get into a lot of great deals. HCA being a private company would not last long, though. After selling off some of the less profitable hospital chains to pay off its debt payments and to strengthen the company's balance sheet, HCA went public again four years later, at a time where the market was now looking up and HCA was now a stronger company. But what was the real reason it went public? Thomas Frist says it in his oral history, saying, The main reason was J.P. Morgan Bank, our largest shareholder, had invested $65 million in the LBO along with management. They were in the banking business, not the hospital business, so they were looking for a means to monetize their investment and realize their gains. What was their gains when HCA went public? Their $65 million became $1.2 billion after just three years. Rainwater's $25 million as part of the equity as well became $480 million, making it one of the best investments of his whole career. Scott, meanwhile, realized that by buying out all these hospitals, he can now pool together the costs and using economies of scale can now get a much lower price for the things each hospital needed. So he started to make bigger and bigger buyouts, and in 1990, Columbia went public. In 1992, it bought a basic American medical for $150 million. In 1993, Humana divested all of its 75 hospitals, and Scott scooped them up in a merger now valuing Columbia at $5 billion. And later that same year, Columbia did another two mergers, making it the biggest private hospital chain in the world. 
It acquired Galen Healthcare for $3.2 billion in stock on August 31st, 1993. A little over a month later, on October 3rd, he acquired HCA for $5.7 billion in stock. So what was the outcome of this whole investment? With Rick Scott fulfilling the blueprint he and Rainwater came up with in 1987, Columbia went from two hospitals and 190 nationwide. Revenue went from $45 million in 1988 to $10.4 billion in 1994. And Rainwater's investment went from $125,000 to $200 million seven years later. Including his stake with HCA, Rainwater's total healthcare investments were the $125,000 in forming Columbia and $25 million as the equity check for HCA. And, and that became a combined $680 million from a total of seven years of investing in the space. This would make up a bulk of Rainwater's net worth and by 1996 helped him become a self-made billionaire. This wraps up our series on Richard Rainwater. But before we end this chapter of the Rainmakers podcast, I want to give some final reflections on the things I personally learned while doing research on Rainwater. One of the biggest things I learned was how important Rainwater's network was to his investments. Rainwater's network was the most important part of his investing success. He focused so much on being in deals and would notoriously be in hundreds of calls throughout the day, seeing what ideas people had for him to pursue. He would also go out to New York all the time for the Basses when he started in the 70s and would travel throughout the country to meet with any manager or banker that can give him a lead on an idea. As his image in the financial community grew, he did not need to travel, but instead would have investors constantly call him or visit his office. He did not treat his office as some sort of secret place where he worked on his investments. He was very open almost too open. His secretaries would line up meetings throughout the day and empty conference rooms on his floor would be treated as a doctor's office with multiple investors waiting per conference room to make their pitch to him. In the 80s and 90s, there seemed to be no barrier to actually getting a meeting with Richard Rainwater. Many of the people that did deals with him when he went off on his own all got jobs by sending letters to his office. Ken Hirsch describes this moment very clearly when he sent his own letter asking Rainwater for a job where Rainwater would cold call him back around a week later asking to meet with him. Having this open office of sorts allowed Rainwater to see deals of all kinds while meeting with experts in various fields should he actually seek their expertise. Without this constant flow of information, I don't think Rainwater would have made a lot of the deals he ended up doing. And the second thing I learned from studying Rainwater is more about deal making and the art of actually being creative. Rainwater was known to make deals fast, but he was also just as quick to get out of it if the deal did not work out. Rainwater was learning as he went along with his deals, and from all the research I spent on his individual investments, there was always a smaller investment he made in the industry before he made his big deal. Before he made the Ensco investment, he did the blocker deal as a small thing to reap the benefits of the net operating losses. And then over time, it became the biggest offshore driller in the world. Before investing in Columbia, he learned the hospital industry by being a small shareholder in AMI before his investments in the space made him $680 million within seven years. Before saving T. Boone Pickens Mesa from bankruptcy, he created Natural Gas Partners as a way to invest in the natural gas space when it went bust. Before creating the Reed Crescent that ended up selling for $7 billion to Morgan Stanley in 2007, he got the knowledge of an impending bust and the solution to operating real estate assets when he tried saving the SNL Texas bank shares in Fort Worth and provided a lifeline to Roger Staubach's real estate company after advising him to split the real estate with his leasing business when he learned how great Staubach was at leasing offices for big corporations in Texas. When Rainwater thought the risk-reward ratio was good enough, he went out for the deal to see what it would become. 
It seemed that each investment was just another data point for him to pursue something bigger. He had his fair share of mistakes, like when he tried to create his own exploration company or tried to do a leverage buy of a retail clothing chain. But the losses were not too big and he quickly got out of them. His creativity shined through when he would find unique ways to invest so he could bear less risk. Rainwater also would not go into deals alone, and whenever he had an investment he was about to make, he would call up everyone in his Rolodex to participate with him and would try to find ways to get institutional partners to chip in either by providing leverage or being a limited partner as well. In a recent interview with Chris Powers of the Fort Podcast, which I, by the way, listen to all the time and I think everybody should listen to, with John Goff, who uh, created Crescent with Rainwater, he said how they gave a designated space to a banker in Rainwater's office so that they could provide debt or equity on the spot in Richard's deals. This was just part of the creativity Rainwater had. With natural gas partners, he wanted to see if there was any opportunities worth pursuing in natural gas, and instead of using only his own money, he set up a partnership with Equitable Life, whereby if they did not hit a certain return, he would not get paid. In buying real estate, he did not put a lot of equity down and relied on leverage to buy many of the buildings he owned. He quickly took all his major companies public to use the allure of his name and raising the stock price so that his operators could pursue more deals with the equity raise and sell bonds to further finance acquisitions. Rainwater was a contrarian, but it was really important to know how he found ways to invest in these markets without fully risking his own capital. And with that, I conclude our series on Richard Rainwater. I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please subscribe and leave a review. I hope to see you guys on the next episode.